Thursday, March 2nd. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Supernova and Rule Breakers, Aaron Bush and David Kretzman. Thanks for being here, guys. Hey, Chris. Thanks, Chris. What a day. Snap is going public, has gone public. And if you're an investor, I mean, this is like this is like Christmas and your birthday and the 4th of July all wrapped into one. This is it. <laughs> Let the mania begin. Uh, we're going to talk about that in a second. We're also going to talk about the latest earnings from Shake Shack and Monster Beverage. Um, let's start with Snap. Snap goes public at $17 a share. It opens for trading to regular investors like you and me at about 24 and a half. So if you're scoring at home, <laughs> that's a 46 45, 46% increase right off the bat before regular investors can get in. And at that point, Snap's market cap is $33 billion, which puts it in the top third of companies in the S&P 500. I, I, I don't know where to begin, David. I, I mean, this is uh, partly it's madness. Um, it's certainly exuberance. This is what exuberance looks like. This is also what it looks like when you haven't had a tech IPO in a couple of years. Yeah, I think people are excited. This is one of the the bigger IPOs, certainly in tech, like you mentioned, that we've seen in a couple of years. So Wall Street's clearly excited today. Uh, yeah, all all rationality going out the window for a day or two, most likely here. It's interesting to just take a, a look at how Snap today compares to Facebook before the IPO. Obviously, Snap is a younger company going public today than Facebook was at the time it went public in 2012. But there are some similarities here where, where you can see, I guess, the, the opportunity or potential for Snap. It's still more of a stretch, I think, for Snap to succeed from here and really reward investors. But just looking at something like average revenue per user, at the time Facebook went public, its average revenue per user was $1.21. $1 for Snap, it's $1.05. So, so pretty close there. The main difference for Snap and the reason the company is losing a ton of money right now and its losses are increasing, its cost per user is above $2, while Facebook's cost per user is more like $1.25. So Snap has now even higher expectations. And whether or not the company can become profitable is something that they themselves question in the S1. They say, we might not ever be able to reach profitability. So there are certainly a lot of question marks with Snap. It's, it's, a, it's a riskier company, very high expectations, and still a very limited operating track record that investors can work with. Yeah. I, I suppose you got to give them bonus points, Aaron, for just coming out and saying, you know what? We might never be profitable. <laughs> well, At least they're admitting it. Yeah, I, mean, I do think that that cost per user um, number is something that's going to prove to be one of the most important metrics that investors need to be looking at. When I read through the the S one prospectus, I started to piece together that what management thinks is their competitive advantage isn't really the network that they've built. It's not necessarily the uniqueness that that Snapchat has created, but Rather, it's their ability to innovate rapidly and to always be a step ahead of the competition. Um, and that's a very different kind of story than you hear from other social media companies. I mean, Twitter is we are live. Facebook wants to connect the world and that kind of thing. Um, and on one hand, this is good because it's going to keep Snapchat out of the trap that Twitter fell into where product innovation stalled. If anything, in Snapchat, we've seen an acceleration. And, and the number of new features and stuff that they've thrown out. So that will help them definitely stay relevant and improve engagement. And that engagement should lead to higher revenue per user and that kind of thing. But that does come at a cost. And that's just yet another hurdle 
to to overcome. And when Snap says that they're a camera company, oh man, I cringe. That's that's their leading statement for <laughs> yeah. everything these days. Snap is a camera company, and it's just like. What? And so, yeah. and so you, you like, kind of have to. Why think are about you saying that, that out well, loud? Wasn't Kodak a camera company? How did that turn out? <laughs> so I, I think that's a that's an important thing to to be thinking about. What exactly that means? And I think for Snap, that means that the evolution of the camera is real, and Snap is driving that. It means that software is playing a bigger and bigger role in what camera technology is doing and connecting people and just having people engage with each other. Um, on a mobile basis, um, augmented reality, filters, all of that kind of stuff. But it also means that um, they're probably going to be stepping more into the hardware game. They've already done that with spectacles. I still don't really know what I think about that. Um, and spectacles, th- like those are literally just glasses. Glasses you it, wear, they take the 10 second videos that automatically upload to your Snap account. They cost $130. So. You, you, it, it might draw some uh, comparisons to Google Glass. A I was just going to say, mm-hmm. yeah, but obviously much more affordable. It has a much more direct use case. So I think you'll see. So far, I think you've seen broader adoption, even at this early stage, compared to Google Glass. Yeah, and I think Evan Spiegel in general has constantly been an underrated CEO, and I think he he probably is a really brilliant product guy. And so, for spectacles, that obviously is a better thing than Google Glass was. And I think that we'll probably see the hardware portfolio expand as well. I don't really know what that's going to look like, but I just I get the sense that things are going to be moving more in that direction as well. Yeah, design and innovation are really, that that's the name of the game for Snapchat. And like Aaron mentioned, I think a lot of that starts with Evan Spiegel, who does have a very solid reputation being a designer and an innovator, a product guy in Silicon Valley. And I just take a step back and I think, you know, there, there was a reason that Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg were very interested. At first, they tried to compete with Snap and Zuckerberg actually flew down to Los Angeles, I think in 2011. And he, he met with Evan Spiegel and he's like, OK, here's what I would do if, if I was Snap. Oh, and by the way, Facebook's going to try to do this. Yeah. Uh, and then I think a year or so later, Facebook offered $3 billion to acquire Snap. And Spiegel and Snap, they turned it down like without thinking about it, it seemed like. And and they got a good amount of heat from investors and from the press for that. And here they are worth 10 times what Facebook offered for them a few years ago. So there is something there, especially with Spiegel. So I think that leadership factor, that's a huge piece of the valuation today and, and th- those high expectations for Snap. And uh, Chris, you and I were just at the uh, the member event we had in Arizona. Yes. And, and you talked to Brad Stone, whose new book, The Upstarts, looks at the early days of Airbnb and Uber. And there's a quote that I thought was very relevant to how, how to think about Snap. So th- this was a quote uh, from Fred Wilson, who was an early Twitter backer who passed on Airbnb. And he says his mistake, this is his direct quote. He said, we made the classic mistake that all investors make. We focused too much on what they were doing at the time and not enough on what they could do, would do, and did do. So I think with Snap, you really have to look at that bigger picture. This is expected to be the first year where digital advertising spend exceeds TV marketing. Uh, so so that's, a, that's a pretty big milestone if that does happen this year. And Snap is really trying to capture those dollars that are shifting from TV advertising to digital advertising, trying to reach that audience between 18 to 35 years old, which is really Snap's bread and butter. So I can see where the company is in an interesting position. They have some tailwinds potentially behind their back. They have a very innovative CEO. 
but yeah, the costs are very high. They're expected to keep going going higher. So the company probably won't make money for a long time. Yeah, and just to give some final perspective, just kind of on the numbers basis, when Facebook IPO'd, it came out um, with pricing about 28 times sales. Twitter was priced at 56 times sales. Snap right now at 33 billion is about 80 times sales, <laughs> um, which is that's a that's a high number. Um, and <laughs> and I would just also keep in mind that today Twitter, just to keep the comparison going, has two and a half billion dollars in sales, <laughs> which is about eight x what it had when it IPO'd. And the stock today is trading for significantly less than it was when IPO'd at. And where it is right now, about eleven billion dollars, is one third uh, where Snap is right now. Um, and so Twitter would, made all that progress, but here Snap is in the same boat. Would you rather have all of Twitter or one third of Snap? I'd I'd actually probably go one third of Snap right now. I, I I would take that gamble on on Spiegel. I just like the the leadership and the vision of Snap a lot more than Twitter right now. It's obviously a riskier bet, but I think Snap right now with the leadership is a bigger idea than Twitter. Aaron, I'd take Twitter, but just getting creative. I think if I can take one hundred percent of Twitter, I think you could have some more control, and then I could make a deal to to figure out how to maybe work things out with Snap. <laughs> Aaron Bush, new CEO yeah. of Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> there are worse ideas. Um, let me go back to Spiegel for a second, just because at, here at the Motley Fool, we one of the things we focus on is leadership, and there are a lot of people going into this IPO. Speaking of Facebook and Twitter, saying using those two companies as comparison points, it's like, well, this could be the next Facebook. It could also be the next Twitter. And you know, people saying that not as a compliment in terms of the IPO, because as you said, Aaron, Twitter's value today is about a third less than it was when it went public on the on the day that it went public. Um, but if you think back to when Facebook went public, there were questions about Mark Zuckerberg, completely fair questions um, about w both his age and his experience. And in this and that's where I think the comparison to Spiegel is apt because it was essential and it wasn't, you know, as I said, these were fair questions. It was essentially, here's this young person what kind of public company CEO is he going to be? And I think that's the thing that we will only find out with time. In the case of Facebook and Zuckerberg, you could point to people like Sheryl Sandberg. You could you could point to other people on the management team, also a bigger company at the time, but uh, and more mature. But you could you could see other people and say, okay, well, whatever kind of public company's CEO Zuckerberg turns out to be. He's he's got some other steady hands on board there. I don't know who else is on Evan Spiegel's management team. We will only find out in time what kind of public CEO he's going to be. But I think it's it's perfectly legitimate to say, hey, and I agree with you, Aaron. Underrated to this point, I think Evan Spiegel not getting quite the credit he probably deserves. Um, but now it's a brand new ball game because they're a public company and they're going to get a report card in three months. And and we'll see how they do. I mean, really, the, the main thing Snap has going for it right now isn't certainly isn't financials. It's leadership and vision. Because I think the company didn't even start making any revenue until 2015, so mm -hmm. a couple of years. So that's a very limited operating history, and they have been scaling that revenue pretty quickly. But that's not a whole lot to go off of. And uh, so I, I think it really does come down to the the design, the innovation of, of Spiegel and that vision, and obviously Wall Street bought into it on on the roadshow. But that 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 right now is really the main thing investors have to to go off of. So it is one of the reasons it's it's a riskier riskier bet today. 
All right, let's move on to Shake Shack. Fourth quarter revenue grew more than 40%, and that's great until you realize that a lot of that, Aaron, is from new locations opening up, and their same-store sales, just 1.5%. That's that's not yeah. going to get it done. Yeah, that's that's pretty normal, it seems, these days. When you realize that last year it was 11%, uh, that's a pretty substantial uh, deceleration. I mean, I think for the most part, this quarter was 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 pretty good. I mean, the top line was moving in the right direction, and that that is probably the number one thing investors would want to see. Um, I mean, still profitable. They just launched a, a mobile ordering app, which is, I, I think me and David talked about, we wish some other companies would do that. <laughs> and so, so they might be a little ahead of the game here, which is, which is a good thing. Um, my, my issue with Shake Shack um, is just how much optimism is based into the price. Um, and there's I, a little less optimism. Yeah, today. a little, a little, yeah. a little less optimism, but still, I mean, and just even compared to even a few months ago, it still hasn't. It's still not that different. I mean, it's 70 times earnings still, right? Yeah, Around yeah. There. And so, yeah, when I see the same store sales dramatically decelerate, labor costs go up, squeeze operating margins. Um, Franchising isn't moving the needle, and that's a big part of their strategy now. International competition in the burger space is about as rough as it gets, um, and I think that as they expand, they'll have more issues standing out. Um, but I think perhaps most importantly, I think there's a pretty wide discrepancy between what's priced into the stock and the economic reality. So just so just a, a few numbers: each store on average delivers about five million dollars in revenue. That's average. Um, but the market is pricing each store at about twenty million dollars. Um, so yeah, wow. take that for what it's worth. That doesn't entirely include all the licensed stores, but it's it's hard to do apples to apples on that. So that's that's very aggressive. And if we look at the entire system, management has guided investors to expect a dollar and twelve cents in earnings per share by twenty twenty, which is kind of specific. Um, but right now, Shake Shack is trading at thirty two times that. And that is expected to come in, you know, two three years. So, that's aggressive. That makes me a little hesitant. They did raise their sales guidance for this year by 0.03 percent, though. Let's wow. not let's not overlook that. Give you know what? Credit. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna give them just a tiny bit of credit for that because when you look at restaurants in general, I'm gonna grade them on the curve in that regard. You know, at least they're guiding higher. At least they're guiding <laughs> ever so that slightly for higher, something. but higher nonetheless. I, I can see the. I mean, the opportunity here with Shake Shack is right now they they just have 114 locations. It seems like a concept that that could be quite a bit bigger than that. So I think that is part of the reason investors are comfortable paying a higher valuation here. Some other things I, I really like with Shake Shack that a lot of other restaurants aren't aren't in this position, especially smaller concepts like this. They're already free cash flow positive. They have uh, almost 75 million in cash and no debt, so they're able to open these new stores through their own cash. They don't have to go into debt. They don't have to issue stock. That's an attractive position. That's similar to that's a similar position to what Buffalo Wild Wings and Chipotle were in 10 years ago or so. But certainly, the the premium that Shake Shack is commanding today, you, you need to see some stronger performance within within those locations and but I mean you, you do have to give the company maybe somewhat of a break just because restaurants have just had a very difficult past couple of years but still one and a half percent comps isn't isn't going to get the job done well we were talking about Domino's pizza the other day and just sort of the the numbers that they've been putting up and I, I throw out the question I'm like you know restaurants are struggling is part of the reason that restaurants are struggling is because 
companies like Domino's Pizza are just making it really easy for people not to leave their homes. Everyone's just going to Domino's, yeah. Or, that's the thing. They're getting Domino's to come to them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, because Domino's, same store sales, in a quarter that's been just brutal for most restaurants, even pretty solid concepts. Domino's, same store Over sales. Over 12%. Yeah, just incredible numbers. Wow. And that's an acceleration from the past couple of years. So, yeah. People, restaurants need to take more notes from from Domino's because the the streak that they're on is just unbelievable. And that's domestic. That's domestic. Oh wow! Yeah. Uh, from food to beverage, shares of Monster Beverage up fourteen percent this morning after strong sales in the fourth quarter. Uh, David, the you know a lot of that's going to the bottom line too. Like in, just in terms of this latest quarter, their their profits look good. Energy drinks are, are hot sellers, and I think Monster still holds the honor of being the top performing stock over the past 20 years. So I looked it up. Any guess over the past 20 years how, how much that stock is up? Wait a minute. I'm sorry. It's the number one stock number over one. 20 years? I know this was true last year, and based on the numbers that, that I pulled up, I'm, I don't think there's any other stock that's uh, overtaken that, that mark. I can't even begin to guess. 26,000. 238,850% <laughs> over the past 20 years. How? That's ridiculous. <laughs> so the cost base right now, Domino's or uh, Monster is trading at about forty-eight dollars a share. Uh, Twenty years ago, is trading at the equivalent of two cents per share. So a couple of pennies would have bought you a. a obviously, there there have been numerous splits and stuff, but pretty incredible performance. Energy drinks have done wonders for for the company and for investors who managed to to hang on through that. That's ridiculous. So, I don't follow this nearly as closely as David does, but I have to say, every time I think. That the company is decelerating for good, or that that just things are going to slow down. As soon as I think that the next quarter they just reaccelerate all over again and just raise guidance, Coca-Cola stuff. Yeah, that 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 really is the the story with Monster. A couple years ago, Coca-Cola took a stake in Monster. Coca-Cola essentially said, "Okay, we're done competing in the energy drink space, so we're going to give Monster our the few energy drink brands we have." And now Coca-Cola owns about 17% of Monster. So over the past couple of years, each quarter, uh, Monster will just transition over to Coca-Cola's bottlers and distributors. So this quarter, uh, they trans- transitioned to Coke's distributors in Brazil, Costa Rica, Panama. So increasing that Latin American presence. They launched uh, in, in China in a couple areas like Shanghai, Shenzhen, and a few others. They're expecting to continue that expansion into China and India in 2017. So this is really just a story of Monster getting their product in front of more people. And once they do that, whether it's in Africa, the Middle East, Asia, Latin America, or even in the U.S., they manage to sell more. And it's just a very attractive business model. Right now they have $600 million in cash, no debt. They're producing well over $100 million in free cash flow each quarter. So it's just a very solid high-margin business. It's been incredibly well-run by Rodney Sachs. He's been CEO since, I think, 1993, and he's been a big piece for that incredible performance of, of, of the stock and the company. They also are, are trying to get into this super soda category. So I, I hadn't realized that Mountain Dew just commands a lot of presence and a lot of market share in that category. So Wait, Monst- what, what, are we, what constitutes super soda? I, I highly still caffeinated. Ca- it's like caffeinated, highly caffeinated soda. So it's not strictly an energy drink. It's not strictly a soft drink. So it's somewhere in between there. I don't know. It, it, it's just a little bit more radioactive, I guess. <laughs> but uh, the Monster late last year they launched Monster Mutant, which really does look radioactive. It's just this really food colory, you know, green red color. But apparently it's selling pretty well initially. Then you also have lines like 
Java Monster, which is the the coffee drink that competes more with the Starbucks prepared beverages. So for those of us who don't get enough caffeine in our coffee, we can get the, the just grab monster. a Monster. And and that's the thing. Like you you would think with health concerns and just the headwinds against soda, you wouldn't expect energy drinks to be doing pretty well. But between 2011 and 2015, the energy drink category in the U.S. almost doubled. So the this is actually a category that continues to grow. So you have those tailwinds behind Monster. They're trying to get more market share from Red Bull and become the dominant energy drink brand in the U.S. and in the world. And now that they have Coca-Cola's distribution model, that, that, that whole system, that should continue to play into their, uh, to their advantage. So I think there are still a lot of reasons to like this company going forward. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, you think about Coca-Cola, which is in some ways the quintessential American brand, and yet, from a business standpoint, the overwhelming majority of sales of Coca-Cola products takes place outside the United States. And when I look at Monster Beverage, and in this latest quarter, international sales make up just a little north of 25% of revenue, even taking into account the gobsmacking stock performance over the last 20 years, I just sort of look at that and go, well, wait a minute, if they can... You know, is it unreasonable to think that they can just double international sales? No, I don't think it is. Yeah, at least. And certain, so, looking over the next ten years, I think you see those, those tailwinds behind Monster's back, and having Coca-Cola's whole distribution system that should help accelerate uh, that transition and that growth internationally for the company. And then there's still room to to gain market share domestically against Red Bull and some of the other brands that might be nipping at Monster's heels. So, yeah, I think there are still a lot of reasons to, to like where Monster can go over the next decade. And one thing that just stands out to me is five years ago, their gross margin was in the low 50%. Now it's in the mid-60s. And I think a big part of that um, has it, it came when the Coca-Cola deal emerged and all that distribution and leveraging all those costs has really pushed up the gross margin. But because they're still in growth mode, not all of that yet has come through and shown in operating margins and free cash flow margins. And so, I mean, just as as things, even as even if revenue growth tapers down, there still is going to be plenty of room for that for the earnings growth to pick back up and keep the stock moving forward, which is just fascinating to me. Are you? Have you had? A, I've never had one of their drinks. Have you? I have. Yeah. And uh, it's a lot of caffeine. <laughs> I. I don't drink like the the actual monster drinks anymore. Those are just a little too sweet. And I'm like, oh, the, this just can't be good for my body. But the the Java monsters aren't aren't bad. If you like iced coffee or something, it, it's pretty similar to a Starbucks frappuccino or something. So I'll go I'll go with the Java monster, maybe like a couple a year, if that. We got to try the super sodas. See if we change colors or something. See, see if we survive, <laughs> man. Could probably run ten miles after that. One of the things I love about companies like this who are performing like this is it just makes me smile for all the times that I hear analysts talking about uh, the growth in organics and the growth. It's like, you know, uh, I mean, you look at the health trends. I mean, we're all getting healthier. It's like, mm, not all of us are getting healthier. <laughs> Monsters there to kind of fill that gap. Yeah. And they've done a good job at it. All right. Aaron Bush, David Kretzman, thanks for being here, guys. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. Producer Dan Boyd's going to. Get everyone a little something to get ready for the weekend. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on Monday. Yeah.